Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. This is News Talk. Yeah, you're very welcome along to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, we'll hear about the sophisticated supermarket scam you need to be aware of. Mark Cavanaugh will review the Nothing Phone 2 and we're going to take a closer look at GAA Go and what it means for the average sports fan. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Instagram at jesskellynt. We may also talk a little bit about Google's Bard, uh, the AI creative tool that was made available here in Ireland and indeed Europe on was it Thursday? It was Thursday of this week. I spoke to Pat Kenny about it briefly on Thursday morning show. Uh, the amount of people over the last few days who've sent me screenshots of it getting things wrong. And I don't know how many times I can say it. It is not a search engine. Google search is there for the searchy bits and Bard is there for the creative bits. I'm pretty sure that's the language Google itself uses. But anyway, we might talk to Emmett Ryan about that a little bit later on when he's on to talk about GAA Go. Uh, But I want to start this week with something a little bit different because as you just heard me say there a second ago, the email address is techtalk at newstalk.com. You can get in touch with questions, queries, whatever you fancy. Uh, But a woman named Tara dropped me an email to that address this week and she joins me now. Uh, Tara, you're very welcome to the show. Just tell me why you decided to reach out. So um, I want to get in touch to raise awareness about a scam that I only encountered on Tuesday evening. And obviously when you get scammed, it's a horrible feeling. And I would think that I'm pretty computer literate. And this was kind of a new level. And when I contacted Bank of Ireland Fraud team they had said this is now operating at a much higher level and then they had a number of cases of it and what I was so surprised about was the little information and awareness about this in the public media but even online Mm. and that's why I just was like I wanted to raise this awareness so that other people don't get scammed because unfortunately it's still operating. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting one because when your email landed into my inbox, I had just seen the same scam uh, the other day. So can you just talk us through what you came across and what exactly happened? Okay, so it was Tuesday evening and basically I wouldn't, or Tuesday night, I wouldn't be a, 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 an online shopper late at night. But I um, someone had prompted me to say that Dunstores had, you know, it was a certain swim gear thing. And I was aware there was a sale on. So I was like, do you know what? I'm going to log on now. So I had gone in. It was on my phone. And normally I would do kind of bigger transactions. Not that it was a big transaction, but I tend to do them on my laptop. But this was on my phone. I put into Google Dunstores, clicked the link. The first link that appeared was in look and feel all very much Dunstores. Um, all the branding, the models, and then they had this sale. This was now 20 past 11 at night that there was further reductions if I made the purchases before 12 midnight. So again, with a marketing background myself, I was like, oh, wow, okay. And uh, then I was like, wow, there was significant savings. So of course I went on to buy one thing, but then went and bought multiple other things. And, but 
nothing up at that point had alarmed me in any way. Look, feel, branding, content, very much done stores. There was maybe one or two little tweaks, but companies often update their websites all the time. Maybe I hadn't been on their site in some time. Mm -hmm. um, so I was like, that's not unusual, but nothing that would cause you any alarm. And then it was just when I went to pay. Um, and I think because it was on my phone, maybe it was like logging in as a guest as opposed to a return customer. Again, not unusual because it was saved maybe on my laptop details. So then I put in my debit card and it said declined. And I figured, OK, there must be quite a bit of activity because their sales about to end. And like there was there was some significant discounts. Now, not everything was, you know, but I said, OK, that makes sense. There's value. I'm on the website, maybe. So then I entered my details again, my debit card, and it said failure. And then I just said, OK, maybe it's the debit card. So then I put in my credit card and that said failure. So I just said, OK, I'm just going to leave it now because obviously there's a problem with the site um, because of the volume. But then I get an email confirmation to say thank you for your order. And it wasn't done stores or it didn't list it in the email confirmation. And then it had my name it had my address. It had my order. And then it said for any um, customer support, it was a Gmail address. And then I was like, oh, no, this is obviously a scam. So straight away, I got onto Bank of Ireland um, because obviously I'd been getting a decline on my cards. And then they had said, no, no, your card has been charged. Now, the amount, look, it wasn't break the bank stuff. It was 63 euro. But what should have been charged was 61. But subsequently, I've heard of other people have been charged more. But it was they had said, we've seen a rise in this activity because I'm aware of the e-flow and air and these texts. But this mm -hmm. was a totally scraped site. And then I said, gosh, like normally you hear about this, you know, and he said, because it was my debit card that was charged, not my credit card, it's going to be harder to get the money back because, you know, there's a little bit of insurance with credit, not so much with debit. But he said, I have to be seen to resolve it with the merchant. So even though we call them the fake duns, I, he goes, look, it's unlikely you're going to hear anything, but you have to look on our end that you tried. So I said, OK, I'll do that. But again, I was like, I don't really want to interact with this crowd anymore, but I'll do that. And I also contacted Dunn Stores because just from my initial searching, there was nothing listed on their website about it. And I had looked at some of their social media posts um, going back as far as July 4th, you know, and mm -hmm. I could see nothing about that. So normally, you know, you might see that the company say just want to let you know or be warned. So I contacted Duns, um, the legit Duns, emailed the fake Duns and they had written back. I said, I, I wish to cancel is what I said. So then I get an email, which again, Jess, this was surprising. I They had sent me confirmation emails, so they could have not sent me anything mm -hmm. and they have the money in the bank. So they did send it. They did send me an email confirming and that's where I flagged that the URLs and the email addresses were all not what they should be. But then they emailed back saying, why are you cancelling? And I was kind of like, OK, there's engagement here. But I was like, if I tell them what flagged it, am I not just giving them more information for them to hide? So I didn't want to say why. Well, I said, actually, I thought I was buying from Dunn Stores Ireland. Clearly, that is not who you are. Would I even receive these products? I was just kind of probing a bit. And they wrote back the following morning. Yes, you would. It's coming from, I don't, I don't know, do they say the same factory? And do you still wish to cancel? So I said, yes, I do. Then the last email, now they are engaging. So they wrote back, okay, your refund will be processed. But 
Now, whether that happens or not remains to be seen. My transaction said Fing Lu Shung or something on my you know, my banking details. I just was like, I don't want other people getting duped. And because there's summer sales on at the moment, people are, I was talking to our postman the other day. He was like, they're as busy now as they have been since Christmas because of these summer sales. So mm. there is going to be more activity. So there's going to be more people getting hit. And I just want people to be aware. That's what prompted me to contact you. Yeah, well, I think you're absolutely right that the, the, the level of these scams, like I've been saying it for years, they're constantly going up in terms of sophistication. You did everything right in terms of going onto the website, making sure the logo was correct, making sure the product seemed correct. The fact that it was essentially a scraped site is very worrying. Tara, do keep in touch with us and let us know if there is any further development. Uh, Sinead Ryan, uh, the consumer columnist and of course of the home show here on News Talk, is with me now. Sinead, I feel like myself, yourself and a few others in this country are talking about scams every other day. And as I said to Tara a second ago, they're continuing to grow in sophistication. They absolutely are. I mean, look, uh, the Banking and Payments Federation, which is the lobby group for banks, Jess, they have released their 2022 figures uh, just this week, which have shown an alarming 95% increase in card fraud. One in two people have experienced an attempted fraud in the last 12 months, and over 85 million euros has been swiped, scammed from customers. Uh, on frauds just like the one that Tara experienced. Although I have to say it is a quite sophisticated one uh, and, you know, I can absolutely understand how she was hoodwinked and taken in uh, by this. Yeah, and the thing that I suppose, because as I mentioned there, you know, I saw this myself and I clicked through onto the link and the website looked exactly like Dunstore's website. And, you know, the advice from people like ourselves for so long has always been like, look out if the logo's not quite right or if, the, you know, there's bad grammar or whatever. This was a carbon, co- for all intents and purposes, or to the naked eye, looked like a carbon copy of the Dunstore's website. Mm. It's a fully cloned site. And the central bank, uh, interestingly enough, they, they try to catch as many of these as they can. And every month they publish a list of clones. Now, very often these are investment firms that are reported to be real when they're not, but they look very like other sites. Uh, the first one of these that I recall coming up was Airbnb. Uh, so they had a cloned site uh, scam a number of years ago and the site looked exactly the same. People were browsing properties uh, and then they were making payments. And and the problem with this one, particularly Dunn Stores, it's such a well-known Irish brand mm. uh, that it takes a huge amount of technical effort, which you'd know more than I would, about you know creating a site that looks identical. And it is very difficult because, as you say, the normal advice is never click through on a link for some social media, never click through in a link offered by email because, uh, you know, always put the name into your own URL. Now, uh, of course, Tara did that, uh, but she didn't check the entire address. So it came up and she said that looks like done stores and click through and therein lay the problem. But we should be able to do it without uh, that concern and without that worry. Uh, so it is it is really uh, quite sophisticated. And the problem is, of course, that you buy all. You, you're not buying anything, of course, but you think you're buying something. And by the time you get to the cart, uh, the payment link, the money is going elsewhere. It's not going to dumps at all. And um, one thing that I want to pick up on with you from what Tara said there, the distinction that Bank of Ireland pointed out between her buying on her debit card versus buying on her credit card. 
Are we safer to use credit cards when we're shopping online to get some sort of callback or recall if something like this does happen? Yeah, well, the chargeback facility, which is where you can get your money back if you're a victim of fraud. I mean, really, it shouldn't make any difference uh, whether it's credit or debit card. But the thing about a credit card is there's a delay on the payment. So the bank can pull it back that bit quicker. The other issue, though, Jess, I have is that credit cards are expensive and we don't always pay them off on time in the right way. So you could end up having extra charges. So I wouldn't be getting a credit card, especially for that. Uh, the problem with chargeback is that it really only applies or can only apply where you have legitimately bought something that either didn't arrive uh, or that you were defrauded of. The problem with what Tara did and lots and lots of other people do is they voluntarily handed over their information and, and the bank then won't necessarily refund you for that. You've handed it over to a fraudster without doing you know, due diligence. Now, I have to say, in a lot of cases, the bank do refund it, especially if they know that there's going to be lots of people uh, scammed this way. Uh, but a, a credit card, I suppose, would have a little bit more security because it can be cancelled because of the delay but you know I'm not sure it's worth getting one just for that um, I want to talk briefly because I've heard ads and if you go onto the website you'll see like on eFlow's website you'll see that there is an awareness and even on Bank of Ireland I think I've seen it as well Um different brands are letting customers know that there are scams out there purporting to be them is there an obligation on a brand uh to alert the customers or is there responsibility in any way, shape or form at their door for this? Look, not legally there isn't, but I really think that Duns and other organisations would do themselves a huge favour by flashing up an alert in the way that eFlow does, in the way that revenue does, in the way that lots and lots of, of companies do. And just have a, a kind of a warning box when you go in that we are currently aware of a scam uh, that is being perpetuated in our name. It's not us. Uh, always make sure you've checked the full address or or something like that. The banks all do this. Uh, mm. So I think Duns really would, would help themselves and their customers and their goodwill if they popped that up. It's not there now. I'm looking at it right now. I can't see any warning. Uh, I think it would be great if they did. Uh, the other thing to do, of course, for people who have been scammed is always tell the Gardaí. I know this seems like, what can they do? And there's no point. There is a point because mm. it's about the volume and the more people that do this, uh, the better off they'll be. And of course, you tell your bank and the banks then keep a list of them. They compile them and, and then they can be alerted when other people uh, have an attempted scam. So you're helping other people by doing that. Yeah. And should you also be a bit mindful then as well over the next you know, week to a month to look out for any other transactions that look a bit suspicious? Because if you've put your car details into somewhere, like we heard in Tara's case, I think it was only for around 60 quid. But there's nothing to say that in a few weeks time now there couldn't be 300 or 3000 taken from her account as a result of this scam. Sometimes they dip their toe in and then go for the big splash down the line. Indeed. And we've all had that transaction, which was a euro, you know, we, we kind of dismiss it and we weren't quite sure what it was. But but it'll be later on that the actual fraud is, is done. So certainly if you've given away the three numbers on the back of your card uh, and the front card details, you, uh, you really need to cancel your card. The bank will do it. They'll put a stop on it. Uh, and they'll do that super quick. In fact, in most of the apps, you can do it in the app, which is a fantastic uh, uh, change. And I, unfortunately, now that 
Tara is going to have to get a new card. There'll probably be a charge for that. It's usually around 10 euros, uh, but it's the safest thing to do. Uh, and not to forget then to update again all her other um, uh, kind of charges that are legitimately made on her card with the new details. So it's a, it's a real kind of um, arduous thing to have to do, but I think it's important. Yeah, it's a total pain in the face. Uh, Sinead Ryan, as always, thanks so much for joining us here on Tech Talk. You're welcome. Yeah, that was Sinead Ryan of The Home Show here on News Talk and, uh, of course, the consumer columnist. Uh, if you've been targeted by a scam or if you've fallen for a scam or if you think you may have, you can always email techtalk at newstalk.com and we will help in any way we can. But you do need to be incredibly vigilant, even when you think you are interacting with a legitimate Irish business, uh, because, as I said a few times there, the level of sophistication is... Uh, just bananas but anyway Tech Talk with Jess Kelly Welcome back to Tech Talk this is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk now in a little while John Fardy will be along with Screen Time but he's popped into me now John how are you? I'm very well Jessica Jessica you always call me Jessica in these handovers like you're my dad Yeah well I, I feel parental towards you I, I'll be honest You're like well, my I, well, much older brother my very very like my much older now. brother One of them told me I was a granddad this morning even though I'm not remotely, but you know. Well, you're 50 this year, aren't you? <clears throat> 48. Yeah, close enough, chicken. 48. Still, as someone said this morning, you look like you're 41. So. You do look younger than me. Well, I, I wouldn't go that far. No, I would. Do you want to hear what's coming on screen time this week? Not really, but go on. No, go on. There is a man called Mark Cousins, who is the great film enthusiast and filmmaker. He's a new documentary called My Name is Alfred Hitchcock, where he gets an actor to voice Alfred Hitchcock. It's fascinating. There's a glorious cartoon called Puff and Rock, which you may be aware of. And Cartoon Saloon, who make that, have made a movie of it called Puff and Rock and the New Friends. So I'm talking to Tom Moore of Cartoon Saloon. And we never reviewed Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1. It's a long title. And Anne-Marie Kane, our old friend, ah. is reviewing that for me this week. So a busy and fun show. Fun show. Uh, talking of your show being fun. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, anyway. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about the Wham documentary on Netflix because our colleague from OTAM, Colin Buig, uh, has been going on about it every single day and encouraged me to watch it. I watched it and I loved it. And then when I was scrolling through my podcasts, I found out that you had the director. Chris Smith. Yeah. On uh, screen time last week when we didn't do a handover, much to my I was it's my fault. Uh, but yeah, he was a fascinating guy. And the documentary is amazing. Uh, and it's a straight ahead documentary. I think people are trying to invent the wheel or reinvent the mm. wheel a bit too much with documentaries. And this is just for people who haven't seen it and you have, is a glorious telling with amazing archive footage of this tiny little band that were almost trying to be like agitating pop inner city guys and then turned into this kind of celebration of sun and sea and a small amount of sex and just became world conquering. It's a brilliant piece of movie making. You know? Yeah, I said on uh, OTBM the other day that I felt bad that I didn't fully appreciate George Michael until after he died. I didn't realise the talent that he was and how young they, he was. And also then the friendship between the two books as well. Yeah. The fact that, that Andrew Ridgely could step back and just let George be the star that he became, I think yeah. was beautiful. But then it also got me thinking about because I love the style of this documentary yeah. in that it's not the piece to camera with a single tear rolling down your face. No, no, it's like, like it's the yeah, it's just but you're hearing the first person accounts from the people who are centrally involved. There's a beautiful use of archive footage uh, 
and it, it, you just get brought into that world. And they went, the filmmaker Christmas went really deep into the archive. And, and I would assume I knew a lot about George Michael, but there's stuff I never saw before, like where he wins that Songwriters Award, the Ivor Novello Awards, and he's in tears. I'd never seen that before. And it's beautiful because that's what George wanted. He wanted recognition from his peers because he was being dismissed as, and you can see why, is this fluffy, you know, light band who sang about drinks being free in Club Tropicana. But there was this titanic pop writing talent there to rival Elton John or whoever. And he was finally getting recognition. And the doc is full of those beautiful moments. And his father, for yeah. people who haven't seen it, like I always thought his dad was this kind of slightly cruel uh, English Cypriot guy who was like, George, you need to be a man. But he basically says, and not to give a spoiler, I was wrong. He did have this titanic talent and we all should have just got out of the way, you know. So it's a beautiful piece. It it's really an absolute is. spoiler, just... Hey, you know, you think this is bad. Wait, you tune in after six. Uh, Darth Vader's Luke Skywalker's father. What? Uh, no, but come here to me. Uh, other good music docu documentaries, because one of the things that annoys me sometimes is that these documentaries get made and it's just one person mm -hmm. talking about how the other person became yeah. the worst. Yeah. Uh, this was a lovely story. Yeah. Uh, other ones that I really enjoyed was Oasis Supersonic, even Brilliant. though there is that falling out. Yeah, yeah. But again, you get that great insight. Yeah. It's a really warm, it's lovely style as well. Yeah. Um, the Amy Winehouse one, Amy. Yeah, Amy. Beautiful, beautiful. They're, they're two of the best. What can also be great in certain music documentaries, and we could talk about this all day because there's Let's. probably nothing I enjoy more, but is sometimes when a documentary and the documentary maker are in a situation where it becomes about something else. So a case in point is one called Some Kind of Monster with Metallica. The guy who made that was brought in to film some kind of DVD commentary or something, and then the band started imploding in front of his face and they were going for group therapy sessions. And the... SH1T hit the fan. That is an amazing piece. It's of, incredibly difficult to watch. It's, it's like great cringe. Though. It is. It's absolutely great. One that won an Oscar about oh, 10, 12 years ago at this stage is called Searching for Sugar Man, which best music documentary ever made. I'm not even sure if it's a music documentary. It's about a musician called Rodriguez uh -huh. who was huge in South Africa in the 70s and then went away and everyone assumed he was dead. He may not have been. It's brilliant. Searching for Sugar Man at won an Oscar. Incredible. Okay. Is yeah. that on a streamer or is it? I'm sure it is. What am I? A movie expert? And as you Excellent know. level of research. As on. you know, I'm a wonderful, or I'm, well, I'm a wonderful man, but I'm a massive, <laughs> I'm a massive Billy Joel fan who I was just over in uh, London, London to see in Hyde yeah. Park. But there's a great documentary called Last Play at Shea, where he's the last act to play at the old Shea Stadium before they tear it down. Shea Stadium was the place where the Beatles played and decided we can't yeah. play live anymore. So Shea Stadium is this like, Iconic. The sound was shocking when the Beatles Oh yeah, there. yeah. And it's this it. iconic place where, and the police decided to break up there. Sting was looking at, so it's this very storied music venue. And this documentary parallels the life of Shea Stadium and the life of Billy Joel together. So like this baseball team leave the same week his father leaves. It's just brilliant piece of storytelling. Even if you're not a Billy Joel fan, it's a great documentary. Okay, that's a good recommendation. Yes. Okay, if you have any other recommendations uh, for us, please do let me know. Techtalk at Newstalk.com. Uh, but of course, you can hear more from John on screen time here on Newstalk from six o'clock. Thanks, John. Thank you. And moving right along, uh, there's a lot of talk, a lot of focus on the high-end smartphones. So whether that is the Samsung S23, the iPhone 14 range. But we all know these devices are incredibly 
expensive. It's also getting more and more difficult to tell one from the other aside from the operating system. Uh, But there's a brand that's come along that's looking to shake things up. It's been around for a little while now. It's called Nothing. Uh, They've brought out their second device, which is very imaginatively named Nothing Phone 2. I haven't seen it yet, but Mark Kavanagh from The Star has, and he's with me now. Mark, just bring us up to speed here with the new device. I have it here in front of me, and uh, yes, it's gorgeous. It's um, very similar to the first one, Nothing Phone 1, which came out last year, but it maybe looks less like an iPhone than last year's model it's got a kind of a gently curved back which a lot of people seem to be calling a pillowed back but i i would call it a gently curved back um and the led interface on the back which they call the glyph interface there's a lot more elements to that this year so that's a bit more striking and you can do a lot more with it but in terms of overall design you could probably have the two of them face up on a table in front of you and not be able to tell the difference between them yeah, and that kind of happens quite a bit with smartphones. Like I've said many times over the years, it's getting increasingly difficult to find new ways to say the battery is class and the camera is deadly. But anyway, just remind us a little bit about the company behind Nothing. There is an irony to 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 what I just said in that a lot of the press coverage that I've seen so far, and probably yourself too, um, has the co-founder of the company, Carl Pay, formerly of OnePlus. He's criticising other phone companies for... Uh, they're iterative upgrades on an annual basis, and he claims that nothing is coming along to do something different. I will give him that, that it certainly looks different to a lot of other phones, but their second generation is an iterative, iterative upgrade as well, just like all of the companies that he criticizes for saying. Um, so, yeah, nothing came, I suppose, after Carl left OnePlus um, a couple of years back, and he said he was going to make tech phone again mm. so first of all first of all there was the ear one earphones they didn't maybe get everything right at that but they did launch their i suppose overall design aesthetic which is transparent design so you can see what's actually going on or at least see some of the internals so i wouldn't say you can see all of the internals in the phone um, and likewise you can't see all of the internals in the rear phone but that design has has followed through on all five products so far so phone one um it was a sort of a what you might call a mid-range phone. I can't remember the Irish price uh, last year. I think it might have been around four nine nine or five four nine, but it had a Snapdragon seven series seven hundred series uh, processor in it. So it wasn't the fastest phone on the block, but it definitely won points for being a fun phone. Uh, the Glyph interface won over a lot of people because it was a unique design. And it had lots of other elements like quirky little audio ringtones and stuff on the phone. But it was very much a mid-ranger. It didn't challenge or attempt to challenge flagship phones um, in the way that maybe Carl's old company, OnePlus, was known for sort of Mm -hmm. releasing flagship killers for many years. So I think that's maybe what he's come up with on phone two. We're kind of heading in that same general direction again. it's uh, It's definitely a much faster phone than last year's phone. Uh, this time around because you've got the Snapdragon 8 Plus series Gen 1 chip inside it. And I think I've got the name wrong there, but you know what I'm talking about. Listen, the Snapdragon uh, chip that came, that came out at the end of last year. Yeah, like the thing that sort of irks me, and I know you and I have sat in briefings over the years with phone manufacturers and, you know, they... they they have all these big visions, which is great. And obviously you need to have a vision if you're going out to the world and selling a phone. But that whole notion of making technology exciting again, like just anyone, 
actually care about being able to see the insides of a phone. Like I've got a gorgeous iPhone 14 Pro Max here and it's the lovely purple colour, which I'm sure has some notions name for the shade of purple. But then it's uh, covered up by a giant case because I know that if I drop my lovely 14 purple Pro Max phone, uh, it's going to cost me a lot of money to get fixed. So like, (laughs) come on, like does anyone actually care about the look of a phone? You can't knock, I suppose, Carl Pay for being good at PR and for being good at creating a hype because uh, I suppose like last year, nothing was one of the most talked about brands. The phone one was one of the most talked about handsets a year. In an interview I saw this week, he said it sold 800,000 units worldwide. You compare that to the iPhone or Samsung Galaxy S- S22 or 23, and that's 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 a very small fish in a big pond. Um, so... He has created an amazing uh, amount of interest about about this phone, um, but is is it is it any more fun? Well, it is. I suppose the glyph interface is fun, but the thing that strikes me about the glyph interface is, uh, you know, you're reviewing a phone. You, you, I'm sure you do the same. You test all the different features on it. You play around with stuff. You look at all the unique stuff, especially, and you kind of go, "Yeah, that's really cool." The way you can. On this glyph interface, you can set timers on it. So one of the LED lights will gradually get longer as you get close to the, your timer running out. That also works with Uber. So if you book an Uber pattern, I know we don't use them that much in Ireland, but they are used a lot elsewhere. It, the, the same LED light will be an indicator of how close your car is to you. So stuff like that is fun. But stuff like that on this phone only works when you put your phone face down on a table. And it occurred to me this week that I never, ever, ever mm-hmm. put my phone my phone face down on the table, ever. I always had it with the face up. So for someone like me, the different interface, yeah, it's great fun in theory, but in practice, I'm probably not going to use it that much. I do like the operating system, system though, this time. That is a bit more fun. You can do a little bit more with it. Um, is it lots more fun than any other phone? No, probably not. And probably the average punter wouldn't find it as much fun as someone like me or you that reviews phones all the time and we kind of geek out on stuff that probably the average hunter doesn't care about. Um, tell me a little bit about the OS because it's nothing OS 2.0. So how, or firstly, is it dr- dramatically and drastically different from Android uh, OS or uh, iOS? It is, it's, it's essentially Android 13 and then they've got their own skin on top of it. Mm-hmm. It, if I, if your home screen looks does look dramatically different than than either Android or Android or iPhone, um, and that's because they basically have, I suppose, stripped all the color out of all your apps and your icons. So listen, I've I mine was held up because of Brexit. My my phone two was held up in customs for for quite a long time. So I've only had this about a week, and I do like the home screen and the fact that everything looks different and it's all monochrome. But, you know, if you're someone that has an awful lot of apps on your home screen, it could be the case that after a while you'd be kind of uh, wasting a lot of time trying to figure out which icon is actually which app because they do look sort of strikingly different. But for now, I am enjoying that element of it. I think it's fun. Other aspects of the OS that are different this time around, the weather app is very different. And they've got a cool kind of glyph composer app, so you can you can actually create your own ringtones. You don't actually have to have any musical knowledge, but I know you come from a musical house, Jess, so you'll probably mm-hmm. have better ringtones. You'll probably have better ringtones than the rest of us. But yeah, you can you can make your own ringtones, and it's really really easy and straightforward. So that's that's fun too. But yeah, it has its own look, and that look goes very much with the overall design of the phone and the previous product. 
Yeah, I couldn't tell you the last time I had my phone on loud to hear a ringtone, to be completely honest with you. Um, the price on this is quite interesting. So the uh, 8 gig, 128 gig version is 679. The 12 gig, 256 version is 729. And the 12 gig, 512 gig is 849. Um, I'm sure you've tested many, many other phones like I have this year. Where would it rank in comparison to something like the Google Pixel 7? Yeah, that's that's a good question, especially if you if you focus in on the honestly the the less expensive one there, the six seven nine. Um, I suppose that pitches it right against the Pixel Seven. Yeah. Um. Oh, yeah. I I like off the top of my head, I'd probably go Pixel Seven because Pixel Seven and the Pixel Seven Pro, obviously, that's a more expensive phone, but both of them have the same. Uh, user experience, which to me is the best user experience you can get on an Android phone. I'm not sure whether you agree with that or not, but I just think it's so fluid and so smooth. There's lots of obviously unique features on it as well that are exclusive to the Pixel phone. Maybe not as many now, but when it came out, there were certainly quite a few exclusive features. Um, so yeah, when you pitch it against the Pixel 7, even though that's a few months old, you got to bear in mind that nothing phones chip is also a few months old. So they are kind of on a level playing field. Um, and then if you look at the more expensive one, the 849, which is the 12 gig and the 512 gig, that kind of puts it against maybe Carl's old company, the OnePlus 11. Mm-hmm. Now, the OnePlus 11, that's not widely available in Ireland, but you could, that's a brilliant phone. And again, super fast, really fluid. It would have the newer Snapdragon chip. Um, yeah. Again, I'm not sure if the average phone would notice, but someone like me or you that uses phones, you know, probably more than we should. Um, we know we noticed that speed difference, and the OnePlus Eleven is probably a better buy than the twelve gig, five hundred and twelve gigabyte, uh, nothing phone too. So I suppose I'm being very negative now about nothing, but I do actually like the phone, um, and I do I do like the way they've kind of gone about their business. And it is listen, it's nice to see anyone going along and being an upstart and putting it up to Apple and Samsung would be my own view. Um, I take all of your points um, mm. and agree with them and agree with them on the hype side of things and the, the marketing side of things. But, you know, since Huawei went out of the market a few years back, uh, Apple and Samsung have been kind of left to do whatever they want. So they haven't really had a serious challenger. I'm not saying that nothing is, is in that ballpark yet. It's not. It's a long way off being a serious challenger to either of them. But it is good to have somebody kind of doing something a little bit different, maybe to kind of get the others to... To, to push their devices a little bit more. Yeah, 100% agree. Uh, I would love to know what you think. Are you going to buy the Nothing phone? Let me know. Email techtalk at newstalk.com. Mark, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us here on News Talk. Thanks, Jess. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Now, earlier in the week, the Oireachtas Committee on Sport and Media met. And Diego was in the spotlight. There was a lot of talk about the value, the access, the cost, uh, a whole host of different elements. And so I wanted to press pause a little bit and take a, a deeper look at the platform. So who's behind it? Who's it good for? And indeed, what does it mean for the average sports fan? Emmett Ryan of the Business Post is with me once again. Uh, Emmett, just remind us where the notion of Go came from original focus was heavily on making sure that the GA sort of controlled the broadcast and the broadcast revenue really of games that were being shown overseas. It came in during Sky's deal showing GA games. So obviously Sky had the UK and Ireland rights of certain games 
RTE had the Ireland rights for uh, a lot of games. Whereas uh, JGO, the idea was for other markets, uh, particularly the RTE games that weren't on Sky for the UK, you would watch them through JGO and pay a subscription fee for those games. It sort of evolved really during the pandemic because obviously people couldn't go to games and the GA wanted to be able to show a lot more of them for fans who were at home, particularly the older viewers. So they put an awful lot of games that were behind closed doors up on the service and available to view in Ireland. And that made an enormous difference, obviously, in terms of the interest. People were more familiar with streaming as a result. But it all really changed this season because that was when the deal changed. So the Sky Games effectively moved to GA Go, which is a behind paywall, obviously, streaming service. And that service, though, is co-owned by RT and the GAA. And that's somewhat where the controversy begins because on the one hand, for its free-to-air TV games, RT is a customer of the GAA, whereas for the streaming service, RTE and GA are 50-50 partners in this third entity, which we know as GA Go. So it's sort of this bizarre thing where they're both a, a, a client and a partner of the GA at the same time. And obviously, in the broader RTE context, it rather encapsulates the current RTE issues around being both a public service broadcaster and a commercially focused organization at the same time. So the real controversy over this season was it, it's essentially because so many of the games people wanted to watch particularly on Saturdays, were behind that paywall. Now, they were already at the pay to view them when they were on Sky, but there was a familiarity, at least, with the Sky games, and people were complaining when Sky had them, just to be clear, just not as vocally, that, you know, it's, it's still through the television at the usual format. For a lot of older users in particular, or people in areas with poor broadband, which is also a significant area, uh, that was a major issue, because essentially people felt that even if they could view the games, legally speaking, it was very challenging for them to do so. Either it was a, a technical issue, uh, either through their own ability or through simply just not having good enough broadband to watch games through streaming. And naturally, some big games or some very exciting games ended up going on that. And that was again where this debate came in, where how are the games being selected for, for free-to-air versus GA Go? How are we deciding what gets to be shown to the public and what ha for free and what has to be behind a paywall? Alan Dillon, uh, well, he was off by one, but he was made a solid point. Five of the last 11 games in the football championship, as in the final 11 knockout games, five were solely on GA Go, which is obviously going to cause concerns for some people, including two quarterfinals. Then you also add in that uh, quite a lot of these, you know, games like the Saturdays weren't shown, but also Kerry of their six championship games so far, only one has been free to air. The game on Sunday, and if they make the alarm final, that will both be free to air. But obviously, they've got David Clifford, who's probably the biggest star in Gaelic football right now. He hasn't been easy to view for people who don't want to have to pay for an extra service. So that's led to an awful lot of controversy around this. Yeah, and I suppose for people who are impacted by it, they will only know too well the matches that have been behind the paywall or have been only on certain um, channels and so on. But who decides what goes where? Because obviously I overhear conversations in this office, right, where the off-the-ball lads will say, oh, well, we've got the rights to the commentary of X match, uh, so we'll be doing that live. Like, Is that a very contentious thing, getting the rights for matches and is the competition there to to with the, the likes of the streamers, the traditional broadcasters, the big broadcasters and so on, all battling? I think that's one of the big complaints because obviously with the GA being in partnership with RTE and GA Go, RTE essentially has the full access to the championship. And so that naturally again leads to that debate over who's choosing what. Whereas in the past, you previously had Virgin Media before Sky, or well, at least when Virgin were called TV3, they had them. And Sky, I know from last year, 
they they were seeking to increase the number of games they had. Essentially, the issue between them and the JA was the JA actually wanted to reduce uh, or or at best retain the maximum number of games Virgin Sky had at the time. Whereas Sky felt that in order for them to get value, they would need to and they were willing to pay just to be clear, but they would need to double the number of games they were showing instead of GA off to go all in with RTE. Obviously, with Virgin Media, there's a commercial interest there in terms of, you know, whether it was worth their while to do it. And the, the GA was already partnered with RT and GA Go, so they couldn't go in to really offer as a separate streaming service even for that particular funding approach. So as a result, competitively, it made it a challenging market. But naturally enough, a lot of people, including several members of the Aroctus during the week, have pointed out, surely GA, given its role as a public organization, should have been looking to make more games free to air and they're pointing out that surely by looking at the likes of TG Car and Virgin Media and not considering it all about what was the best in terms of fiscal return, they should have looked for ways to get more games on more platforms. OK, I, this is the part of the show where I ask some stupid questions. Yeah, so just bear with me. Um, you know, the way RT has the RT player and Virgin Media has the Virgin Media player and so on. Why did like what was the differentiator between GA Go and the RTE player? Like, could they not have just hosted the matches on the RTE player, which is which does feature advertising, thus getting revenue that way? Which is one of the many good questions. But essentially, GA and RTE have both acknowledged that through GA Go, they wanted to use it as a revenue generator. They want to get subscription money for it. Now, there are two price points to bear in mind. One is the season pass, that was €78 Euro for uh, the, the games. I think there was 42 games shown on GA Go this year, so it was less than €2 Euro per game. It was very good value across that. But for an individual game, which led to a lot of consternation, it was €12 Euro per match, which an awful lot of people gave out about. And again, there was also the technical challenge on top of that. So, you know, but a lot of people have made the argument that there are other outlets that could have been used that could have made these games free to air. There was this, it was seen by an awful lot of people in the J, particularly, um, and members or people who've been going to games for a long time, that this was an element of greed on the part of both organizations, and really they should have been looking for a way to ensure more people got to see these games. Um, there had been talk a few years ago about uh, Wimbledon being streamed live on Twitter, uh, and then there'd been talk about Amazon uh, streaming live sport. Will the traditional streamers and social platforms tap into this now, or? Is the monetization too lucrative to to both the sporting organizations and indeed the other channels and broadcasters to let uh, you know social media get anywhere near it? It's been a softy softy approach so far from the uh, online broadcasters. One way of putting them that's your Amazons, your YouTube's, uh, Apple, and the like. But we're starting to see some increased moves. Like the NFL t- typically has one game a week now that's only on Amazon. There's two mm-hmm. rounds of Premier League fixtures which are only on Amazon. Apple have recently pitched the entirety of Major League Soccer, the US League, to show its rights around the world. So there are definitely examples there. But at the same time, the broadband quality issue remains one, which is why a lot of the streamers are still a little wary of diving into live, live content. Because essentially, when it comes to live content that you know people want to watch live by the very nature, you need to have that quality broadband to ensure it's going to deliver what you want. So as a result, some of the traditional big big players in the streaming space are still that bit wary about going all in on it, going, going with a major investment as in like to, to compete with your big market players in any market, like be it a small market like Ireland or a major market like the United States. Because essentially, there is always going to be this little bit in the back of the head of the, of the rights owner, that the GA or the NFL or whoever, who are trying to make sure they can maximize the audience, maximize that interaction. 
And even if there's a paying audience, they'll know that, like, you know, in the US, ESPN, for all the issues with cable TV, having cord cutting, is still going to be easier for someone to access than Amazon Prime. And that's still in the back of the heads of a lot of users. Likewise, over here, Sky, we, I mentioned, again, people had to pay, but there was this element of, but at least we know people can get Sky wherever they are in terms of Sky Sports. Broadband has that little bit of a eh, reaction from people. Like, but, so we're seeing it in parts, obviously, it's expanding usage, but we haven't seen it become the primary holder of the biggest rights, so to speak, yet. And I think until really we get a far higher quality of broadband everywhere, like not just where you and I are, Jeff, because we happen to live in areas that are well served. I still think we're going to see that wariness from the governing bodies. Like we are getting there. I think within the next 10 years, we're certain it's going to be far more of a factor. Uh, but uh, right now, I don't think it's as big as I would have expected, say, this time 10 years ago. Mm. Um, finally, I was thinking about you the other weekend when the Twitter rate limit exceeded thing came on because I wanted to talk to you about... Like, as you said there, you're a huge sports fan and you'd often, you know, tweet or put stuff up on Instagram as you're watching different games. Like, with the the way things are going with Twitter and with threads happening in certain parts of the world as well, is it going to be harder for people like you who like to dual screen, as in, you know, watch a match on telly, but then also engage it on social media? If the users are going to become decentralised, because obviously we here in Europe don't have uh, Meta's threads, and also then Twitter has just been an overall dose. Um, like, is that going to impact the average sports fan? I think it already has, uh, even before threads came out. Because certainly, cause like, you know, particularly with like a lot of the sports, you know, I watched, they would have very active online communities all over the world. And just following what people were saying about what's going on has clear, have clearly become harder because of Twitter getting more janky, for want of a technical mm-hmm. term, uh, in the last few months. Like, uh, I, you know, the, since the World Cup, really, in football last, last autumn, winter, we started to see that, and I've noticed it more with the type of events I'd watch where you'd expect like really heavy activity, where there'd be like, you know, just like, you know, be hard to find the people I would normally follow, inter- you know, uh, interesting or, fo- or find the thing that actually is the most interesting coming up. Like, it's just not what it was. And uh, like, you know, the classic one is I'm having a lot more people share and tweet at me via WhatsApp than ever before because they know there's a better chance that I might have seen over three hours than there ever was before, <laughs> which is a classic one of that. I think Threads is only going to compound that because anyone I know in the US and UK has used Threads has basically said it's just so much cleaner in terms of the ease of use and things not breaking, which is basically all you really want from an app of that nature. So, you know, and all the major sports organizations in the US have already jumped on Threads. I'm sure they're doing so in the UK as well. And until we see it in Europe, although I think that might be sooner than I was guessing, I was very pessimistic a couple of weeks ago, uh, I think we're, it's going to continue to have that divide. The reason I have a bit more confident, Jess, just before we wrap up, I know, mm-hmm. is with Bard being cleared by the DPC the other day by Google, that was like within a month of them being told you're not going to be cleared. I thought that was going to be a lot longer of a turnaround time. So I now think that like, you know, with Meta, when they bring thread to the DPC here, they might be able to get a far faster turnaround than I was expecting as well, which I was initially saying December at best, January and February more likely for Europe, which is obviously very pessimistic but also what I genuinely thought was the case. Now, realistically, it could it could actually be here by September, very plausibly. But, okay, well, hang on, let's stay on that now, because I, um, I was talking to Pat Kenny about uh, Bard the other day, and I brought him the statement from the DPC. 
it doesn't seem that the DPC has given it the gold standard, you know, badge and they're number one on the podium. It seems like they've done enough to launch in Europe, but there is going to be active engagement. I don't know if I'd be, for once, I don't think I'd be as optimistic as you in this instance. Yeah, but it's more that they actually allowed them to get through is what actually made me optimistic in that respect, because there will be active engagement. DPC has said Google has to, well, Google has to come back to them in three months on it. But I thought that essentially because of, you know, how clearly they hadn't reached the DPC standards, like in June, I thought until, unless they're hitting gold standard, they aren't getting that green light. And like they hit the I or grand standard, which is not exactly the highest standard, yet, I think it's safe to say. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, because they got to go live with the I or grand standard. That's a bit of a surprise. So that has me far more confident for threads getting a quicker approval than I would have been like only a couple of weeks ago. Have you played around with Bard? I've yet to, but that's to be honest, is entirely because my life has been pure busyness. Uh, doing all the great things with the business folks. So read it all this weekend online and in print. What a plug. Emmett Ryan, as always, thanks so much for joining us here on Newstalk. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, and that's it from me this week. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full on the Newstalk app powered by GoLoud. I'll be back with Shane and Kira on Monday's Newstalk Breakfast. But in the meantime, have a great weekend.